Welcome, and thank you for listening to Sandy Creek Stirrings. I'm your host, Joshua Jimenez. And if you're going to win souls, you've got to love souls. In spite of their meanness, in spite of the way they look, in spite of everything, you've got to seek to bring souls to Jesus Christ because you love them, because Jesus loved them, and because Jesus died for them, and you're trying to bring them to the Son of God. The Bible says in Psalm 84, 11, my last verse, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. I based my whole life on that, that it pays to serve God, and I believe that with all my heart. God has given us a guidebook. God has given us a directional map. And that guidebook, that map, is the precious Word of God. Listen, don't just go and sit in the pew. Find some way to serve and serve as a family. Be a part of everything at church. And when you learn to love what God loves, um, your children will learn to love it as well. Homes are not that spiritually strong. We're getting overtaken by the world quickly, but unfortunately, we're pumping all the sewage in. You know, we're letting the world in when that ought to be a haven. Thank you for being a listener of Sandy Creek Stirrings, of course, a podcast where our goal is to stir you up for the cause of Christ. I hope you enjoyed just our last episode, episode number 200. We did an interview with Dr. Arlo Elam and was able to talk with him and the churches that he started and the ministries he's been in and just to what an encouragement he's been and commitment and faithfulness. So if you missed that message, let me encourage you as a listener to go back and listen to episode number 200. Here we are, episode number 201. Wow. I'm just still in shock. We made it to 201 episodes. I don't know if you are or not, but uh, here we are, episode number 201. Let me encourage you, if you've enjoyed Sandy Creek Stirrings and the many different episodes and topics and different things we've covered here on the podcast, let me encourage you to leave us a review. You can leave that on Apple Podcasts or you can leave it on Facebook, and that just simply allows other people to be able to find and enjoy the same content that you are able to listen to here on Sandy Creek Stirrings. Of course, as always, you can ask a question by emailing me. That email is joshua at sandycreekstirrings.com. Joshua at sandycreekstirrings.com. And today, you know, in this world, everyone wants revival. I don't know if there's any Christian who, if I went to them right now and said, do you want revival? I don't think I'd find one who is genuine about the Lord who would say, no, I don't want a revival. No, I don't think America needs revival. No, I don't think, you know, our families need revival. No, I don't, I don't, think, if I, I don't think if I found a genuine Christian, I don't think a single one of them would say, no, I think we all agree we need revival. Our nation needs revival. Our families need revival. Our homes need revival. Our churches need revival. We personally, on a personal level, need revival. But sadly, most people don't experience revival because they don't understand what needs to happen for revival to come. You see, revival won't come until... And that's the question we're going to answer today. I preached this message entitled, Revival Won't Come Until, um, maybe a year ago now, on our, at our church in a service, and it's a message that I keep going back to and look to for encouragement, and it reminded me to make sure I have things set up in a way in my life so revival will come. And so hopefully this message is a blessing to you, and hopefully it causes you to keep looking up and keep stirred up for the cause of Christ. So until next time, my friends... Do just that, and hopefully you enjoy the message. 
So Galatians chapter 4, let's look at verse number 18. Galatians chapter 4, verse number 18, Paul's writing, of course, to the church of Galatia, and he says, but it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing, and not only when I am present with you. In 1739, a 25-year-old man stepped off a ship in the Boston Harbor onto the docks of that Boston Harbor for the very first time, a ship coming from England. He had been, even as just a 25-year-old young man, he had already been, as a preacher, kicked out of the dead, uh, corrupted English churches, and they said, you can't preach here anymore because of his convicting preaching. And so what did he do? He went instead and he began to preach in the fields across England. And after a certain amount of time, he set his sights on the new world. And there in 1739, he arrived there in the Boston Harbor and God began to do a great work. He came for one purpose. He came for one reason. He wanted to see souls saved. And that's an exciting purpose and an exciting vision. And so there he was. He stepped off the dock. And in 1739, the Great Awakening broke loose. How many of you have heard of the Great Awakening before? The Great Awakening broke loose. And this man, by the name of George Whitfield, just 25 years old, began to travel around the countryside, preaching the Word of God, seeing souls saved, people added to churches. It was just incredible. Well, was going on during this time period. I want to read to you a couple of journal entries he wrote from his journal. I want you to listen very closely. He wrote from Chester on Thursday, November 29th of 1739. He said, I preached to about 5,000 people from a balcony. It being court day, the justices sent word that they would defer their meetings till mine was over. Oh, that we would have some judges like that today. Amen. And he said this writing from Wilmington the very next day, Friday, November 30th, he said, preached at noon and again at three in the afternoon, received several fresh invitations to preach at various places. He said this from Newcastle, Saturday, December 1st, very next day, he said, preached to about 2,000 from another balcony. White Clay Creek, the very next day, he said this Sunday, December 2nd, he said the weather was rainy, but upwards of 10,000 people were assembled. It was incredible what was going on, and as he finished up his preaching, he finished up his rounds around the eastern coast of the New World, went back to the Boston Harbor, gave his farewell message, and said that 23,000 people gathered beside the Boston Harbor to see his farewell message. By the way, 23,000 was more than the citizens of Boston. 23,000 people were there. He preached one final time, got on the ship, went back to England leaving behind a trail of thousands of souls saved, people added to churches, faith grown. It was incredible what was happening all within this great awakening. But what really was the great awakening? The Great Awakening was what we would term as a revival. And in fact, it's one of history's most recognized revivals. It's one of America's most significant revivals, the Great Awakening. Now, I've heard revival defined many different ways. I've heard someone before, they defined revival as kind of along the same terms as repentance. It's a U-turn, a turn back to God within your life, within your church, within your organization, whatever it may be. It's a U-turn back to God. I think that's a, a decent definition. I heard somebody say that revival is tears. It's a just a soul travail to be back in tune with God. I think that's a good definition as well. Noah Webster, in his standard 1828 dictionary, he defined revival as a renewal. And he went on to say this within his dictionary. He said, renewed and more active attention to religion, an awakening of men to their spiritual concerns. I think that fits the definition as well. But sometimes we can get with a definition and we don't really know what it looks like. 
So if revival were to happen here this morning, what would it look like? And Preacher and I were talking about this point, and he began to read off some things. I thought, that is what revival looks like. He said, revival looks like sins abandoned. He said, revival looks like apathy forsaken. You say, what's apathy? Apathy is lack of interest, lack of enthusiasm, lack of concern. That's apathy. Apathy forsaken. Relationships restored, family strengthened, laborers called, faith grown, flesh conquered, folks saved. By the way, that's the very first step of revival in anyone's life, in any organization, in any church, in any nation. It's folks saved. Let me tell you something. If you're here this morning and you've never asked Jesus Christ to come into your heart and save you, the rest of this message this morning will mean nothing to you because until you have revival in your own heart, a revival where you've asked Jesus Christ, where you've become, as Noah Webster said in his dictionary, if you become aware of spiritual concerns. And can I just say this this morning? If you've never asked Christ, there is something to be spiritually concerned about because one day there will be a judgment. And one day there will be a book of life that's opened up. And one day if your name is not found in that book, then you will be cast in the eternal lake of fire. And so there is a spiritual concern. And all of that can be resolved this morning, though. Just by simply kneeling in faith and asking Jesus Christ to be your Savior, my friend, we don't have to have that spiritual concern of a coming hell. It can all be resolved this morning. But from there, revival is something that's needed. We've had... Uh, revivals and revival preachers come across history's timeline. If you were to go back in the Bible to the end of the book of 2 Kings, you'll find Shaphan. In 622 B.C. roughly, Shaphan, the scribe, rushed into the throne room of the young king Josiah. He said, we have found the word of God. And Josiah said, commanded that, 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 that word of God, that book to be read. If you remember, after it was read, he rent his clothes he said, what a wicked people we are. We've turned away from God. We need to turn back to Him. They went out. They destroyed the false idols. They destroyed the, the altars where they worshiped false gods. And the Bible says that they turned, the nation of Israel turned wholeheartedly to God. That's a revival. You could look at revival preachers, and there's many we could mention this morning. You could go back to a man by the name of D.L. Moody, who preached in the late 1800s, who preached revival fire just across America, and millions, it's estimated over a million people came to the knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ as their Savior because of his revival fire preaching. Revival is definitely what we need. Thousands and thousands of Christians every single day, I'll put myself in there, kneel down, and ask Jesus, ask God to send America a revival because we need a national revival. We need a nation that would turn back and be spiritually concerned about some things, to do a U-turn to God. We need a nation that, frankly, if you watch our nation, our nation is morally crumbling. Laws are being passed. Groups are being organized. Things are being set into place. And we need a revival within America nationally. We need to abandon our sins. We need to forsake our apathy. We need to have relationships restored within America and family strengthened and faith grown and laborers called from America. America needs revival. But we can take that magnifying glass and go a step further. Can I just go a little bit closer and say our churches need revival? Our churches are crumbling morally. So many so-called churches are letting sin in the back door when the Word of God should be preached from the pulpit, preaching the sin out. You should be able to come into church and it be a, a haven from the world that's constantly at you all week. But so many churches are letting the world in these doors. So many churches have become more in tune with a, a rock and roll concert than in preaching the entire and the whole Word of God. We need revival within our churches. 
if we can go even closer, what makes up our churches is families, husbands, wives, children. We need revivals within our families. I mean, if you look at our families today, they're, they're falling apart. That organization that God created that should be holding together like no other institution anywhere, that family should be holding together. But you look at the divorce rate and the separation rate and all these things, they're just crumbling and they're falling apart. Dads aren't loving their wives and their children like they should. Wives aren't raising their children like they should. Wives aren't respecting their husbands like they should. Children are rebellious and unruly. Our families need revival. But can I just say this morning that if revival is what we want, and that's the way we think about revival, everything I set up to this point, if that's our thought process about revival, we will never have it. And you say, Brother Josh, that makes absolutely no sense. Because if all we ever do is pray for America to have revival, and all we ever do is pray for our churches to have revival, and all we ever do is pray for other families to have revival, we will never have it. If we truly want revival, our prayer has to change from God send revival to America to God send revival to me. God send revival to me. Can I just ask you this morning, when was the last time you knelt down by your bed, knelt down wherever you pray, your prayer closet? And for some people who have no idea what I'm talking about, you might think we have a special room we go and pray in, but a closet just referring to that special place where you go and you commune with God. When's the last time you put aside the prayers for America to have revival? And I'm not saying don't pray for America to have revival. We do need to pray that. But put that aside. Put pray, prayers for revival for our church and prayers for revival for families aside and said, God, send revival to me. God, send me revival. I have sins to forsake. I have apathy to put aside. I need relationships restored. I want you to call me as a laborer. I need revival. God, send revival to me. Until then, revival will not come. Until then, revival will not come until we change our line of, of thinking. Revival will tarry. In that famous book entitled, Why Revival Tarries, the author listed these, reason these reasons for why revival hasn't come. He said, revival tarries because of a cheapening of the gospel. Revival tarries because of carelessness. Revival tarries because of fear. Revival tarries because of a lack of urgency in prayer. Revival tarries because we steal the glory that belongs to God. And I believe all those reasons to be true. I believe all of them to be a message within themselves. But can I just say that it, I, I firmly believe that the number one reason revival tarries is because we're so concerned with other people having revival. We don't truly desire revival for ourselves. As you're in the, your notes this morning, I want you to write down a few things, if you will. I want you to write down... A couple notes. Number one, revival will not come until it becomes your desire. Revival will not come until revival becomes your desire. You may say, what's the title of this morning's message on our YouTube channel? For those listening on live stream, they would have saw the little thumbnail, the little picture, and it says, revival won't come until. And frankly, that's the first point. Number one, revival won't come until it becomes your desire. Look back there at Galatians chapter 4 and look at verse number 18. Look at what the Bible says. But it is good to be zealously affected in a good thing and not only when I am present with you. Have you ever wanted something before? Maybe you can go back to a time as a kid where you wanted a, a dog or you wanted a pet or you wanted a new bike. Have you ever noticed when we want something, when we truly deep-seated desire something, we go to any avenue to try and get whatever it is. We will sell stuff. 
We will go get an extra job to raise money. We think about it. We meditate on it. We lose sleep over it because we want it. It just kind of burns within us. We have a zeal for that desire. Remember when on the Emmaus Road, those two disciples were walking and they were saddened. Why? Because their Savior, Jesus Christ, had died. He was buried in a grave and they thought it was all over. They thought hope was lost. Everything they desired seemed to die there on that cross with Jesus Christ. And then if you remember, Jesus Christ appeared to them. They didn't realize it was him. And at the end of it all, when he disappeared again, he said, did not our hearts burn within us? They had a zeal. And Paul here is saying you need to have a zeal about some good things. You need to have a zeal about some things. You say, what should I have a zeal about? Turn to Revelation with me. Turn to Revelation chapter number 3. Revelation chapter number 3. What should I have a zeal about? What should I be desirous of? Revelation chapter number 3. I want you to look with me in verse number 17. Revelation chapter 3, verse number 17. Of course, Jesus Christ is speaking to these churches in Revelation, and He said this in verse 17 of Revelation chapter 3. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and Knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked? I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness doth not appear. And anoint thine eyes with thy salve, that thou mayest see as many as I love. Listen closely. I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore... And repent. You hear what Jesus is saying there? He's telling the church, he said, you think you're okay. You think you're just fine. But then he goes on to give some pretty condemning things there. He says, but you're wretched, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked. He says, you think you're fine. The truth is you need to be zealous about some good things and you need to repent. You need to do a U-turn. Wait a second. Doesn't that sound familiar? Something we've already talked about this morning. He says, you need to be zealous about revival. You need to be zealous about revival. And truth is, there are too many Americans sitting in churches across America this very same morning as us who think they're fine, but the truth is they need a revival. Revival won't come, though, until it becomes our desire. It burns within us. You say, what is that going to matter? Because if revival is truly what we want, then we'll go to any avenue to get revival. We'll start to lose sleep over not having revival. We'll meditate on it. We'll think about it. It'll just burn within us and we'll say, God, I want revival. And that zeal will be noticed by God and He will send revival. But until then, it will not come. There's a reason Christ said in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 2, set your affection on things above. Revival isn't just something that happens down here. It has so many spiritual implications. A man once wrote down this in his journal. He recorded, he said, I was surprised this morning when I read in the newspaper that the conductor of the Philadelphia Orchestra dislocated his shoulder while leading the, the orchestra. He said, I don't know what song they were going over, he said, but that conductor gave himself all to it. He said, I sat and I wondered, have I ever given myself all to something so much that I dislocated anything, even my necktie? zeal. You know, I'm afraid we get so zealous about the new this and the new that and this trinket over here and this item and our hobby and our plans. We get so zealous about all these things 
that we forget to be zealous about the things of God. Set your affection on things above. Set your desire, set your zeal on things above. Until then, until revival becomes your desire, until revival, and I'll preach to myself this morning, until it becomes my desire, revival won't come. Number two, revival won't come until revival is your prayer. Revival won't come until revival is your prayer. Write down the reference this morning. We won't go there for sake of time. But James chapter 5 and verse number 16, you know it well. You could probably quote it with me. The Bible says, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. You know, we can do all the praying for America to have revival that we want, and it's important we should, or our churches or our families. But until we make it our prayer, until you make it your prayer, I'm not talking to a group this morning. I mean each person individually. And until I make it my prayer, it just won't happen. Can I ask you, how has your prayer life been? I love the, the preaching here at Victory Springs from our pastor. He, he, he goes a, a lot of different directions to where we're not always hearing the same thing. There's always something different to hear, amen? Right now, going over that gender crisis series, it's just wonderful. I love we're hitting all these topics, but you know, sometimes we have to get the basics in. How's our prayer life been? How's our prayer life been? A wise man once wrote, he said, the biggest single factor contributing to delayed Holy Ghost revival is the omission of soul travail, that praying fervently with tears. He said, the only power God yields to is that of prayer. We will write about prayer power, but not fight while in prayer. But who will storm hell's stronghold? Who will say to the devil, nay, who will deny himself good food or good company or, or good rest in fasting that hell may gaze upon him, wrestling, embarrassing demons, liberating captives, depopulating hell, leaving an answer to his travail of prayer, a stream of blood lost souls. He finished it all by saying this, to be much for God. We must be much with God. Amen. Let's be honest, we have pushed prayer to the side. We have pushed prayer to the side in our lives. We push prayer to the side in our churches. We can schedule an event, we can schedule an activity, and boy, people will come, and it's great, but prayer meeting! And not as many people come. You say, why? We push prayer aside. Push prayer aside. I tell you something, man. Uh, Saturday night, we have an important meeting coming up, one of the most important you'll have here at the church. That's the prayer meeting. That's, right. That's the prayer meeting. We need to make it something of importance, but can I just go closer? We're not just going to talk about church prayer meeting. When's the last time you had a family prayer meeting? Can I just tell you this, dads, and I'll raise my hands first. We fail if we don't gather our wives and our children throughout the week, and we meet together and say, we're going to have a family prayer meeting. I'm not talking about praying for the meals. God is great. God is good. Let us thank Him for our food. I'm not talking about praying, God, give us a good day. Amen. I'm talking about having a family prayer meeting, getting together and, and praying together. Moms, gathering your children and praying and having a family prayer meeting. How about your, your personal prayer time? I asked the teens the same question this morning. I said, if God sent down a list, if He watched you, which He does, He watched you this entire week and recorded how many hours you spent, you spent in prayer this week, and he were to send down that list this morning, would you be embarrassed to have it read in front of everybody else? Would it even equal one hour? You say, should I pray for one hour a week? Absolutely, maybe one hour a day. My friends, we've gotten away from being a people who pray fervently, who pray broken, who pray, who pray, who pray. 
Number three, revival will not come unless revival is your focus. Revival will not come until revival is your focus. Turn to Romans chapter 8 with me this morning. Revival will not come until revival is your focus. Romans chapter number 8. I want you to look at verse number 5. Romans 8, 5 says, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. But they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Notice what they says. He says, if you're after the flesh, you're going to mind, you're going to think about, you're going to focus on the things of the flesh. He says, but if, if, you're, if you're thinking of things of the Spirit, if you're going to mind those, he said, that's what you're going to get. You know, Solomon so eloquently demonstrated in the book of Proverbs about how we need to focus on, we need to chase after wisdom. You say, what's focus look like? He describes it, Proverbs chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. He says, so that thou incline thine ear unto wisdom and apply thine heart to understanding. Notice what this man wants. He wants wisdom. That's his desire. Do we want wisdom? Amen. Do we want revival? Amen. Here's how we have to respond. He say, yea, if thou criest after knowledge... And liftest up thy voice for understanding. If thou seekest her as silver and searchest for her as hid treasures, then thou shalt understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. It has to become our focus. Have you ever read the story of someone who is a professional athlete? And they'll talk about their childhood and they say, you know, all my childhood, all I ever wanted to be was a professional athlete. Can I just step away for a second here and say that's really a pretty shallow goal for your life if that's all you wanted. And, uh, but they, oh, that's all I wanted. And you'll go and you might read their biography and you might read their story and some interesting stuff. And do you know what their focus was during their childhood? What they desired, what they wanted was professional athlete. That's what I wanted to be. And so what did they put their focus to? What action did they put to their desire? They'd go out and do everything they could to be a professional athlete. You'll read of professional NBA players who in high school they would go and they'd shoot three, four, five hundred free throws a day to try and become better and better so that they could accomplish their goal of becoming a professional athlete. They'll change their sleep patterns. They'll change their diet. They'll change how late they stay up. They'll change who they hang around. They'll change what they do all to try and attain this dream of becoming a professional athlete because your focus changes the way you do things. Your focus changes how you react to things. Your focus changes what you follow after. If we would have the same commitment to revival that a professional athlete has to chasing a ball down the court, what revival we could have within our churches? What revival we could have within our nation if we would only focus on revival? I ask you this morning, what are you focused on? What are you focused on? Are you focused on the problems around you? Why do we get all shocked and upset when something happens? Something breaks and it's like the world came crumbling apart. I can tell you now this morning, things are going to happen. Problems are going to come. It's inevitable. They will happen. But we can tell by our response to the problem what our focus is on. Are we focused on fear? Can I just say fear's not going away anytime soon? Fear is still going to be purported, it's still going to be pushed, it's still going to be scattered about, but you can tell who somebody is focused on or what they're focused on by their response to fear. Focused on finances maybe, focused on work, focused on self. 
If we want revival, it will not come. And it cannot come until revival is our focus. I want to give you three more short thoughts and we'll be done. How can we expect revival if we hold on to sin? How can we expect revival if we hold on to sin? You know, it's one thing to go in our prayer time and to kneel down before God and say, God, send revival. God, send revival to America. God, send revival to my church. God, send revivals to uh, my families. But it's another to pray, God, forgive me. God, I've done wrong. Lord, some th there's some things that I need to get right. And to prepare the field of our heart to be able to receive the vi revival that God will send if we are faithful. To, to cry out as David did in Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. How can we expect revival when we want to hold on to sins and pet sins and, and sins that we think, well, I've been doing it for so long, it doesn't really matter anymore. He's forgiven me that many times, he'll forgive me again. Well, it's just something nobody really knows about. We cannot, we cannot expect revival. We can't say amen in a service on revival and then go home and keep holding on to sins. We have to let it go. We have to move on. Revival looks like sins abandoned. How can we expect revival if we keep holding on to sin? Next, how can we expect revival when we don't walk with the Lord? We've already covered this up to a point. We need to be people of prayer, but we need to be people of God's Word. Can I just ask you a question? Why do we struggle so much with reading the Word of God? Have you ever noticed it's just a struggle, isn't it? Seems like we're consistent this week, and then this week we miss a couple days, and we just wonder, why am I struggling with this? Because Satan knows above anything, if he can get you away from the Word of God, he's got you. And so if we expect revival, if we expect a true U-turn a true to God, we're going to have to learn to start making this thing of walking with the Lord and reading the Bible every day. I'm not talking about reading uh, the little Bread for Believers book. That's not the Word of God. I'm talking about reading the Word of God and soaking it up. And you say, it's hard sometimes. I understand. Right now my Bible reading, I'm in First Chronicles. All right, anybody who's read the Bible through knows First Chronicles. You get there and it just kind of slows down. And Shafan begat so-and-so, and this was the son of this guy, and this is the son. And I, I, I admit, it's a little difficult, but you know what? Sometimes we eat some things we don't really like. My wife will make peas sometime. Oh, peas. Oh, goodness. There is no other disgrace to a plate than there is peas. Oh, my. Oh, peas. But you know, sometimes she'll make peas, and I'll eat it anyway. You know why? Because sometimes you need to eat it. It's the right thing to do. It's respectful. My wife will cry if I don't. And then, um, no, but it, I need to. It's, it's good for you, isn't it? It's good for you. You know, sometimes it may, you may get to a difficult passage in the Word of God, and you just read it anyway because you know what? You need it. It's good for you. It's good for you. And you get to the end of your reading. Sometimes you say, I just read that, and I got to the end of the chapter, and I don't even remember exactly what was going on. Like, I was literally reading it. I, I was literally trying to come. I have no idea what's going on. Let me ask you. Do you remember what you had for lunch last Sunday? Maybe lunch on Monday or Tuesday? I don't know about you. I, I know what I had on Tuesday because we had um, hospital pizza. Don't have, don't have the pizza at the hospital. But, um, you know, most of the times we don't remember every single meal we had that week. But the important thing was we ate. Because if we stopped eating, we would die. Just keep reading the Word of God. Just keep reading the Word of God, having a relationship with Him. Why don't we, though, go a step further and why don't we memorize the Word of God? 
We think that's something for the junior church kids in the back. They memorize the Word of God. Or the teenagers in Sunday school. That's their job to memorize the Word of God. But I'm older now. I'm an adult. I don't have to memorize. No, we still need to make memorizing the Word of God a matter of importance. Yes. Thy Word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. In fact, we're going to learn a brand new hymn tonight. Thy Word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. That I might not sin, that I might not sin, thy word have I hid in my heart. We're going to learn a brand new hymn tonight on that subject. Why don't we memorize the Word of God? My memory's not very good anymore. Try harder. It'll work. Why don't we meditate on the Word of God? I'll be the first person to raise my hand. Too often throughout the week, I'll read the Word of God, and I won't think about it the rest of the day. The Bible says... This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. And then thou shalt make thy way prosperous. And then thou shalt have, the only time you find this word written in the word of God, then thou shalt have good success. Success is tied. I'm not talking about worldly success. I'm talking about spiritual success and things that really matter. Success is tied to how much we meditate on the word of God. It doesn't say read it. It says meditate upon it. We must meditate on the Word of God. How can we expect revival if we don't have a relationship with God? And then last but not least, how can we expect revival? How can we expect revival when we don't follow God wholeheartedly? I loved, I, just finishing up, of course, Second Kings going into Chronicles, that story we talked about in 622 B.C. where Shaphan ran into the throne room of King Josiah. He said, we found the Word of God. And then the Bible says specifically, they followed God with their whole heart. We need to get back to being a Christian who follows God with our whole heart. Sometimes we can get into a rut of, well, I'll put my money in the offering. Or, oh, I'll do this little activity over here. And that'll suffice. God's okay with that. That makes, you know, my, our accounts are settled now with God. But we don't follow God with our whole heart. Turn to Luke. Luke with me this morning. Luke chapter 10. Can I just remind you what Jesus said in Luke chapter 10? Luke chapter 10 and verse number 27. Luke 10 and verse number 27. And he answering said, Thou shalt. That's a command, my friend. Thou shalt. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind. Until we get back to following God wholeheartedly, we can't expect revival to come. That's right. We can't expect revival to come. Once again, I'll raise my hand, the very first person, and say, you know, too often I'll do something for God, but I won't do it wholeheartedly. I'll do it to where it's appropriate, where everybody else will think it's, hey, good job, that, that'll work. But I don't give my all for Christ as much as I need to. Wholeheartedly following God. You know, too many times we let our desires and our wants get in the way of things we should do. I didn't say could do. I said, should do. They're right. We should do them. We let our wants and we let our desires get in the way. We use terms like, well, I, I, that, that's not really my thing. 
You know, I, well, I'm, I'm not really very good at that. Well, I, I, I can't do that. Let me ask you, let me, let me not ask you, let me tell you. If the Bible says to do it, if the Bible says we should do it, it doesn't matter if we don't want to or not. It doesn't matter if it's our thing. It doesn't matter if we're not comfortable with it. We should do it. Do it anyway. If God says to be a witness, then we should be a witness. If God says to be in church, then my friend, we should be in church. And by the way, can I just encourage you? Be in church every service. Because, and I'll just put this out here and we'll move right along. But just coming to church on one service, that's just doing it to try and make the account settled with God. That's not a wholehearted follow to God. If God says to rejoice evermore, by the way He does, then rejoice evermore. If God says to be content with what you have, then be content with what you have. If God says to follow Him with your whole heart, follow Him with your whole heart. Because until then, how can we expect revival? If we want revival, it first has to be our desire. Individually. It has to be your desire, it has to be my desire. It has to be your prayer, it has to be my prayer. It has to be your focus, it has to be my focus as individuals. Then we have to get rid of sin. Then we have to walk with Him and then we have to follow Him with a whole heart. Until then, revival will not come. Does America need revival? Absolutely. Amen. A thousand times again, America needs a revival. America needs to be awakened to spiritual concerns. We should pray for it. Does our churches, and even this church, amen, does it need a revival? Of course. Of course, amen, we need to pray for revival. Do our families need revival? Amen. Our families need revival? Absolutely. But it will never come. It will never come until we change our prayer for America and for the church and for our families to first, and then follow down the line, but first, God, send revival to me. I'll ask you again, when is the last time we've knelt before God and said, God, send revival to me? I need it. I'll be the first person to raise my hand. God, I need revival. I need, I need some sins abandoned. I need apathy forsaken. And by the way, revival isn't God coming in and sprinkling something over you and poof, revival happens and boy, everything's ready to go. No, part of it is a U-turn. You are turning back to God and God comes along. Revival. We need it. There was a man by the name of Ronnie Gypsy Smith. That was his nickname, Gypsy. Where it came from, I don't really know, but that was his nickname. Rodney Gypsy Smith was born in the outskirts of London around the time of 1860. He never received a formal education, but he was invited to the White House by two different United States presidents. He was able to lecture at Harvard. He was just a true man of God. He crossed the Atlantic Ocean 45 times preaching the gospel. 45 preaching the gospel back and forth. Millions of people heard this man, Rodney Gypsy Smith, preach. It said that he never preached a message where somebody didn't surrender their life to the Lord. How incredible is that? One day a group of men came to him. They said, Mr. Smith, they said, you've done so much with your life and you've just seen such great things for God and we're just so amazed. We want to see the same in our lives. What a holy desire that is, amen? That's what Elisha wanted, by the way. He wanted that from Elijah. Elijah said, you can have, what, what do you want? And Elijah said, I just want a double of you. Just give me that. 
It's a holy desire to have something that I want to just have the effect that you had with your life. And they said, that's what we want. We want to have an impact like you. And he revealed the secret to how God had made him into such a great man of God. He said, here's what you do. He said, go home. Close your door. Kneel down on the floor with a piece of chalk and draw a circle around yourself. And there fervently and brokenly pray that God would send revival in that circle. That was the secret to his greatness. And until we develop that prayer, God send revival to me. Revival just won't come until then. With heads bowed and eyes closed, nobody looking around this morning, as the pianist comes to the piano, we need revival. We need a U-turn back to God. Too many of us are holding on to sin. We're holding on to apathy, that lack of enthusiasm. We're holding on to bitterness that have broken down relationships. We're doing things that, whether we realize it or not, are breaking our family, not strengthening them. We're stopping from allowing God to grow our faith. We need a revival. But before anything else, we need it as individuals.